Um, I'm going to go ahead and begin. Uh, if you'll notice, it's four pages of, uh, of kind of outline tonight. Um, and I can tell you why. I'll let you in on the secret. Um, this was a class uh, that uh, the man who did this class, this is the only time he ever taught on this subject. Did it one time. I went to it. I got all of this from him that time. And then he went back to being a pastor. And as far as I know, he never presented it this way again. So I've just gone back, and what I'm doing is I've taken the notes that I took, which I did not take super complete notes, and I'm transferred into points and, and saying things. And so most nights it's been two of those classes in one. Last week was one, because I wanted just to be able to go slow about fasting. And this week it's three, because i got to finish them all in nine weeks, and, and there was none that I didn't think we should look at. So um, we're going we're gonna to kind of hurry tonight, so... If you got a question, please raise your hand. I'll try not to keep my head too buried. Uh, I don't mean to, if you have a question, I really want you to ask it. This morning after the first service, a young man, very thoughtful young man, he walked up. Um, and I, I'm not sure how I was saying it then. But uh, he just said, that sounds like works, talking about the fruit uh, in the first service, the way I said it. And so I was explaining to him that the fruit of our life is evidence of salvation, not the causation of salvation. And that caused him to understand it. Um, James says, you say you have faith apart from works. I'll show you my faith by my works. So works are not something we do to gain salvation. But it's definitely something we ought to do after salvation. In Ephesians, we love to say 2.8.9, but we forget verse 10. And since I just said that, let me read it so I get it right. But uh, Ephesians 2.8.9 is, for by grace are ye saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the result of our salvation is fruit. There ought to be fruit in our life. And fruit, uh, we have to define fruit, and I'm just saying it now so we can keep going because that's not part of tonight. But fruit can be Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, all those things. We ought to have those because the Holy Spirit lives with us. Fruit, we, we generally think of it, the most thing we first say is like people being saved. And, uh, uh, and that is definitely fruit. We ought to have that. Being more Christ-like is fruit uh, and, and, and uh, the praise Him and those things. And so the basic definition of fruit is any gain on God's investment, right? That's fruit anyway. Fruit is gain on investment. Uh, or ROI, return on investment, is in the business world. So in the spirit world, fruit is I change, I'm different, God puts something in me, and I bring others into the kingdom. And so the Christian ought to always be producing fruit. We're never out of season in a sense. Peter said, be ready in season and out of season. Um, and so that fig tree was not showing indication it was ever going to have fruit. And so he cursed it. Uh, but, of course, he prepared that tree for that, I believe. Uh, it's not just a random tree. And he went, oh, a chance for a random uh, illustration. I think he, he had all that lined up so he could show us that. So anyway, that's from this morning. So if you have a question, uh, this class, I don't mean, because I'll come back and finish it next time. Uh, we'll go 10 weeks. We have to. If you can't show up, that's okay. Uh, uh, it's not to me. I want you to be here, but I'm just saying. We can, we can keep going if we want to. So uh, anyway, so we're going to jump in. So let's begin in prayer. Uh, God, indeed, uh, you are the causation, uh, not only of our salvation, but of our prayers. 
You're the, you're the causing element of our praise and worship. You're the causing element of us uh, doing anything positive for you. If, if it were not for you, we wouldn't do anything at all. So we, we get that. We understand that. And we, uh, we are grateful for that. We just pray, Lord, that we would be obedient when we feel the, the urging, the nudging of the Holy Spirit. Knowing that you empower us to obey. Lord, um, many times it seems like it is a choice, and it, and it is. We can choose to disobey. But God, we don't really want to do that. We want to obey. So we pray that um, tonight as we study and we learn um, how, to, how to feed our faith with hope. That, Lord, we will, um, we will be, uh, get in line with your will and your way. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I, I combine all these classes, and I have to kind of combine the title. This is uh, Praying with Confidence in God's Power. So one week was Praying with Confidence, one was Praying, or one was God's Power, and I'm jamming them together here a little bit. But in Matthew 22, 21-22, um, which we were in Matthew 21 this morning, verse 22, um, he says this, Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And don't forget the title that I've given this, Praying with Confidence in God's Power. This is, uh, a lot of this is, is how we can have confidence that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. And so it, from there, uh, this, this verse, twenty one twenty two, and let me read it again. Um, Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. So what you can pray about is whatever you ask. You can ask God. We talked in times past about being in right relationship with God so that our will gets in line with His. So when that happens, we begin to pray in His will. So whatever we ask in His authority, it's going to happen if we have faith. And there is a cause there. I mean, a, a condition, if. So if we believe, that's what faith means. It's, it's trust in a stated promise. Um, Again, to make it simple for me, um, if I tell my son that we're going fishing on Saturday morning and he comes down the stairs for breakfast uh, wearing his uh, fishing hat and tackle box and carrying his pole, that's faith. Because I said we were going. So he has full confidence we are. And sometimes we pray and ours is more of a wishing than a believing. So here in, in Matthew 22... 21, 22, there are two essentials necessary to pray confidently and expectantly. And first, it says, uh, it, it just says there, whatever you ask in prayer. Um, but I would say we need to ascertain God's will. And this is what confuses us because we figure if it's God's will, he's going to do it anyway. And you, you would probably be right in that. And so you say, well, what's the point? He's going to do what he wants to do. And if I want him to do something different, he's not going to listen to me anyway. Well, if you want him to do something different than what he's decided is the best thing to do, we're messed up anyhow, right? We don't want a guy that just comes to our whims. What, what do you call a child who has parents that does anything his child asks him to do? Spoiled, thank you. Um, and and uh, I can think of worse words. We were watching the news. It was about 25 years ago now. I forgot the guy's name. And... Uh, and there was I forgot what the news thing was about, but they mentioned a kid, and they used some word. I can't. Even, yeah, I remember the last word he used. 
And, uh, and, and he said this little kid was whatever. And, he, and, he, and I mean, this news guy, he's an old guy. And he stopped and he looked up and he, and he said that word again. He said, that's a big word for a hellion. <laughs> and then he went back to the news. I went, honey, did you just hear that? I mean, he just went off script. He was like he was frustrated. And, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, so I don't want to be that with God, you know. So uh, to want God's will ought to be kind of natural to us anyway, um, that, that we should want his will. So we need to ascertain that. Here, Colossians 1, 9, and uh, I, I am going to read all of these for us. And I have to turn there, so if you want to turn with me anytime, you, you can probably beat me to the verse. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So there's a verse that says... Paul says, I've not ceased to pray for you that you'll be filled with the knowledge of his will. And, and again, Romans 12, 1 and 2, which I don't list on the paper here, but don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of the word that you can prove what the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God is. So there, all through Scripture, there's definitely the idea that as a believer, knowing God's will is something that ought to be kind of natural to us, that, that we should know it. And so we need to spend time with him and get to know him. I mean, um, that's, just, that's just part of it. I, I quoted uh, this man, prayer breeds prayer of the right sort. Um, I said that at the beginning of this class. Uh, I said that we, you probably would go through a time where it's like, well, the preacher said I shouldn't pray that way, and you'll stop yourself, and you, then you feel frustrated, like, am I praying right? Am I praying wrong? There's no wrong way to pray. You just pray. Um, there are better ways to pray, I think. Uh, but, but if you're praying, it'll help you to learn to pray. Uh, the more you do it, the better you can get at it, um, and you can learn other things. But prayer pre- breeds prayer of the right sort. In, in other words, if I'm praying, I am opening myself up to God that then can, he can fill my mind with Scripture to help me pray better. Does that make sense? And I, I will tell you this. Um, I, um, I, I, when I use the word Hare Krishna, I don't know if you know what that means. Those were the guys that had bald heads with one ponytail, and they wore white robes, and they banged tambourines in airports years ago. Um, and uh, they finally said you couldn't go in there. Now, and now Christians can't go in there and witness either. But they, before the days of, of such strict travel, they'd be in the airport, and they would hand you a book. We want you to have this. And then they'd demand a donation. And uh, um, I heard about one guy, and the guy says, we want you to have this book. He said, thank you, and took it and turned around and started walking off. The guy said, you got you to gotta pay for it. And he said, you said you were going to give it to me, so I appreciate it. I'm going. And the guy reached up and grabbed it from him, and the guy was a black belt in Christ. So he turned around, and he dumped him in a trash can. Cops came running over and said, what are you doing? He said, this man stole my book and had him arrested. So um, that's one way to deal with it. It's probably not the best way, but that's what he did. Um, but, you know, but, but that, that system, I'm sorry I chased a rabbit there just to make it funny, but what they, that transcendental meditation, Hare Krishna, Eastern meditation, they sit there and they do something and they try to empty their mind so that they can be open to the spirit or to a spirit. Well, that's exactly what happens and evil spirits come in. Biblical meditation is not making your mind blank or open. It's meditating on God's word. And as you meditate on God's word and you pray it back to God and you're thinking about what's God saying here? What does he mean? And I start praying that, even ask him, Lord, exactly what did you mean here? Is this, what does this mean in my life? You're opening yourselves up to the Holy Spirit because you stay anchored in the word to give you a true word from God and you ascertain his will. And I think Christians ought to be able to ascertain God's will 
as we pray. So focus and pinpoint your praying. You know, I'm going to pray about this. I'm going to pray about this subject, this issue. And, and I think as we pray, we ought to get more and more and more and more specific. Now, when you do that, what you realize is you need to spend a lot more time in prayer. Because it's easier to say, bless all the missionaries, bless my family, bless the food, amen. Sometimes we were at a meal, so he says, would you pray? And I said, well, at our house, we just pray in the grocery store. And we don't have to keep doing this over and over. And that's a joke, but that's sort of how we pray, isn't it? God bless all the missionaries. Well, how about praying for some specific people that need to have some specific needs? People that you might know. Um, so, 2 Corinthians is a great verse, and, and, and uh, it, it starts at verse 20, and we won't go past that, um, even though I've got listed all the way to the end of the chapter, 2 Corinthians 1, uh, all the way down to, to uh, actually it's 24 verses there, and I, that says 20 through 31, um, that's not quite right, but here's what it says in verse 20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Now, what do I mean by that? Some people have debated, I haven't heard this in a long time, but just in case you're old school and you heard this way in the past, we haven't talked about it and you still hold on to it. There used to be a strong idea, and I'm, I'm just going to stand up here so I can see you better a little bit. I'm, I'm not trying to get above you. I just I can't see as well. There used to be this idea that Old Testament was for the Jewish people, New Testament for Christians. Every pro, that verse says that every promise that may be the will of God, or every promise that we can find, is the will of God. So if God has a promise in Scripture, it's mine until he tells me I can't have it. Because it is prayer that I lay claim to it, and it's prayer when I lay claim to it, then he can say, I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to give you a better presence of myself. Because he never says no. He says, you can't have that, but you can have, you'll know my presence. I will give you my presence and comfort. I'm going to give you something better than that, usually. Uh, and, it's, and by better, I mean more suited for us. And so, in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises are ours. So it makes sense to pray what you find in here rather than something you make up, right? And when you're looking in here for the promises of God, they kind of go away from a lot of our popular praying because we tend to be very selfish in our praying, and we'll see a verse about that in a little bit. Okay, so um, here's some hindrances to answers to prayer. I should have uh, put that there. Uh, beginning under that Second Corinthians passage down there, it starts Psalm 66. I should have put a little a caption there that says hindrances uh, to prayer answer. One is we hold on to sin. That's Psalm 66, 18 that says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. To regard iniquity means I hold on to a pet sin. I won't let go of it. Um, James 4, 3 um, it says you war and do all these things, but you don't obtain because you do not ask. Then you ask and do not get it because you, you consume it on your own lust. So James 4, 3, don't pray for the fulfillment of your own lust. You, you can't pray for what you want to make you happy that is only of this world. Um, it, it, unless it is to the glory of God. And it, um, but then that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about you're praying for something that you want. Oh, Lord, if you just give me... You know, that, that Porsche or that big house or that vacation home or that boat or that motorcycle or whatever. I'm going to glorify you with that. Um, 
That's trying to do an end run. God knows better. You're not going to fool God. Y'all know that quote, uh, you can fool some of the people all the time and all the people some of the time. Abraham Lincoln actually said that and they never quote the last two things he said. Said, you can fool all the people some of the time, some of the people all the time, but you can never fool God any of the time. That's what he finished saying. And uh, that's true. So in prayer, there's no point in trying. Um, so don't pray for something just because you want it. First uh, Peter 3, 7, if men, if you do not live, if you don't honor your wife and live with them according to knowledge and understanding, it'll hinder your prayers. And Hebrews 6, 12, don't be sluggish and quit. Now, I'm going to open to that one. Um, I've been more or less quoting the other ones. Maybe a word or two was off. But listen to what Hebrews 6, 12 says, because we're going to look at that in a little bit more depth as we go. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So don't be sluggish and quit. Don't give up. Um, And he's referring to, um, well, the Jewish people come to mind that in in the wilderness uh, uh, didn't trust God. That's why they had to wander around. But in, in verse 11, it says, We desire to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you would not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and perseverance inherit the promise. So there again, we see that faith and perseverance. So in talking about perseverance, many wish for a thing, but they don't will for it. I mean, I wish I could do a lot of things, but I've not given the time and effort to make it happen. You have to will it. You have to make yourself do it. Um, and, and anybody who has achieved excellence in any field, if you're going to talk about it, you're going to talk about the cost of it. And the cost is that there's a lot of things you can't do that other people get to do. And you just you dedicate your 100% of your life to that thing. So in prayer, um, that's something you've got to dedicate yourself to. Perseverance is to will it through the through to the answer. Have you ever heard what I call the old timers? Uh, they're all mostly in heaven now because I am the old timer now. But the old timers used to say, we're going to pray it through. And it meant we're going to pray till we get an answer. And they would meet at church and they'd pray until God came down and gave them an answer. They would not leave. They'd not let go of God until they got an answer. Um, that's what perseverance is. The word perseverance that we use here is the real meaning of the word patience in the Bible. Perseverance is a patience. Patience is not, I'm going to be calm in the face of difficulty. That's not patience. That's some other things, but it's not patience. Patience is digging a foxhole saying, you will not go past this point. I am going to stay here till I get this accomplished. So it's, that's the word perseverance. So if you're not praying, you're not persevering. The only way to persevere is through the supernatural work of God. What great example of perseverance in prayer um, in is in Scripture. There's many of them, but I'm thinking of one very specifically, and you ought to be too if you were in church today. Or at least this afternoon. Christ in the garden, yeah. Because that was exactly what he was telling the disciples. Hey, there's a test coming. You're not going to pass. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak, and you won't make it through. You will not pass the coming test. He wasn't talking about falling asleep. He's talking about the test that was up there about to face. Whether they would deny Christ or not. And they didn't pray and they all denied Christ. They all ran. But Jesus passed the test and went to the cross because he prayed for those three hours. Right? 
he kept persevering in prayer. And so if you're not persevering, praying, you're not going to persevere. The only way to persevere is the supernatural work of God. Romans 5, 3 and 4. Um, great text. Uh, Romans 5 is a great chapter. It's worthy of memorization, really. Um, it says this. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Wait a minute. Okay, Paul has lost his ever-loving. He just said, that, well, rejoice in our sufferings. I thought we were all trying to get rid of our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces endurance. That's perseverance, isn't it? And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. So the Holy Spirit has been given to us. I've said it before. I don't know if you caught it. Let me give you a definition for hope. Hope is confident expectation. I illustrated it with my son. If he hope, I told him we're going fishing. He has hope that we are. And he has such hope. He believes it's going to happen. And since I gave him a specific time. He comes down dressed and ready to go. Because he has confident expectation. It's going to happen. That's what hope is. Hope is not a sitting around. Oh, I hope that happens. No, hope is, I prayed for it, it's going to happen. God said it, it's going to happen. Period, no doubt, no question, it's, it's, it's coming. Okay? Um, and we're going to illustrate this. You're going to understand Hebrews 11, 1, some of us for the first time in our life. All right. Um, and then 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8 is the text you're a little bit more familiar with probably. You've heard preachers preach about it. Uh, especially a lot of times like at graduations and things, um, seems to be one that we use it in. But his divine power has granted us all things that, uh, I'm sorry, I'm up in three, that pertain to life and godliness. I'm just going to keep reading. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, in which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desire, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here in... 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8 is, how do I produce fruit? Well, you start off with faith. You start off believing what God said. And to that, you add virtue. And that is a um, consistent uh, obedience to the faith. And to that, you add knowledge. You learn more about what does God want. And to that knowledge, you add self-control. Therefore, since I know God wants this, I won't do that. You know, if you say yes to something, it means you said no to everything else. That's a phrase you ought to write down and remember. When I, well, every yes means a no to something else. No means I'm open to a different yes. Yes means I've closed off to all other options. I've picked an option. I've said yes to this option. There's a TV show, Say Yes to the Dress. Yes, I've seen it. I've never turned to it, but I've been in the room when it was on. And I've seen it. That's a joke. But women just, and, and of course, you know, reality TV is, hey, let's pretend this is real. And so then they make something up. And so they come out, and they try on three different dresses or something, and the moms and the girlfriends. And it, the shops in New York, so they get a lot of people that talk like this. 
And they say, oh, darling, that's horrible. You know, I hate it. And they just go on and on and on. That was my best New York accent I could do. Um, and it's just, it's just dumb. And then finally, are you saying yes to the dress? Yes, I'm saying yes to the dress. And it's usually the $28,000 dress, and it just blows my mind. But, um, but, but that's what that show's about. Do you ladies like that stuff? Like, does it cover me? Good. That's good enough. Let's go. Um, but, but when we add, <laughs> sorry, when, when we add knowledge, we know what we ought to choose, Right? We, we're adding to faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control. This is what I ought to. So now I'm going to exercise self-control, choose the right thing. And self-control, I add to that steadfastness. So many times we choose, and then as soon as it gets rough, we back out of it. No, I'm going to stay steadfast. I'm going to stay with it. And to that, I add godliness. In other words, I'm going to, I'm going to act as like God wants me to act. That's what the word means. And to godliness, brotherly affection. Does it shock you that to like other people comes way down that list? I thought you just got saved and all of a sudden you liked everybody. Uh-uh. <laughs> they still get on your last nerve, okay? And, but once you begin to grow in understanding God's will and nature and what that means for you, somewhere along the line you start realizing that you can understand other people's struggle and actually have a godly affection, brotherly affection for them. And to that you add love, which is beyond affection. It's unconditional. Brotherly affection means, man, I like you a lot, but if you mess up, I'm just going to slap you, you know? Love means I'm going to want to slap you, but I'm going to love you through this, okay? And then he says, if you have these qualities and they keep increasing, it keeps you from being ineffectual, and it aids in your spiritual understanding and growth in Christ, that spiritual fruitfulness. So those verses are very, very great to understand perseverance because perseverance is a freight train going somewhere. You may feel like you're under that train trying to get, get there, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to help you. And just don't forget, the only board the carpenter uses is the one he cuts on. So if you feel yourself under trial, uh, be of cheer. You're not just piled up in the lumber yard sitting around. God's actually trying to do something with you. And so the deal is you can't stay on the potter's wheel if you don't pray because you want to get off every time. It is not fun for the potter to take up that clay and go and mash you and then make you into something new. That is not a pleasant process. Um, so you've got to pray to stay on that wheel and let God work through you. So let's talk about having that kind of confident endurance. So what do you do? First of all, you make a claim. Mark 11. You've heard that idea misused enough that it might scare you. But here's what it says. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you've received it and it'll be yours. Now, that wasn't some wild-haired preacher saying that. That's Jesus saying that. Mark eleven twenty four. So make your claim. What is it that you want from God? And he says, therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe you've received it and it will be yours. And back to that Hebrews 6.12 again. Um, I've already read it once. You don't have to turn back there again. But I'm going to reread it for you. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitate... I'm sorry. Uh, Yeah, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. So you claim the promise and then you stay with it. You don't get sluggish about it. 
The most honest statement I ever heard, a famous preacher came to the Southern Baptist Convention to speak. I, I told you all this before. And he got up and he said, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to be here. And he said, so many of you have walked into me in the halls and things and said, I'm praying for you. And then he went, really? Because I'm not praying for you. And I went, thank you. He was honest. So I, he said, well, I, I prayed about coming here and speaking, but I wasn't praying for each one of you like that. Are you really praying for me? I really appreciate that. And, and he meant it as, wow, that's amazing, because I, I, you weren't even in my mind. You know, and, and so I think, to me, what he illustrated there for me is there's something that I want, but I know me. I'm, my attention span's about that long, you know. And so right now, oh God, yes, I want this, I want this tomorrow. I want something else. You know, I'm like that kid. And it's a mark of immaturity, isn't it? The children want something different all the time. I gotta have it, everybody's got it. And if you follow the trends in the world, you know, they, they play on kids now. They, they make things to make sure that they want this and that next week they're going to want something else. And they advertise and they do all kind of stuff to make them want them. What was it, a year ago, honey, about when fidget spinners were like everybody, they, everybody's selling at them, everybody's got a home, everybody had one. When's the last time you saw a kid with a fidget spinner? But a year ago, man, they will die if they don't get one. And now it's just gone. They didn't die either. Did you notice that? Uh, my friend's little sister used to say, but, but everybody's doing it. I want to go do it. And he said, I'm not doing it. And he used to tell his little sister, I'm not doing it. Everybody's not doing it. That's a lie. You know, and, and, but, and we, we look at the kids and we laugh at them. We do the same thing. Today, oh, God, if you don't do this. I'll just, I'll just. Give it 24 hours. See if you still feel that way. So make sure. But when you make a claim, then stick with it. If you, man, this is the will of God, then don't get sluggish, as Hebrews 6.12 says, don't do it. Hang in there with it. Don't give up on that, no matter what. I, my first church, this lady, her husband uh, left her. What's that? Okay, come right to you. Uh, she, her husband left her for another man. And I told her she had to faithfully wait on him to leave her because she was the believer. She was a new Christian. And one day, I remember asking me one day, how long? I said, until God lets go. He says, you can let go until it's done. And he brought her flowers like a year later at her office on her birthday. And she like, says, does this mean you want to come home? He said, no. She said, well, I'm just asking. <laughs> and she prayed that thing through. And he didn't come home, but God gave her a different answer. Yes, ma'am. My wife has a question for him. Go ahead. Okay, that's a great question. The question was, can you be certain it's God's will if you're praying for someone's salvation? And I would say yes and no. Um, we can find a general promise that it's not his will that any should repent, but all should come. Uh, any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Um, some people claim you'll be saved and your household. Um, I would lay claim to those until God said, okay, let go of that. I'm, you know, I'll do my thing in my time. I think if we have a burden for someone, that's never wrong. And, I, and that we ought to continue to pray. Um, I would just add to that. And, and so I would say, there may be a no. There may be a time where God's like, don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. You've got to trust me with it. Um, so there might be a time where you... I, I would say our danger on our side of it is we're praying for it and then we try to accomplish it. 
Does that make sense? In other words, Lord, I want you to save so-and-so, and then we go nag them instead of sitting back and let God engineer circumstances to bring them. And, and here's, here's I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm fussing at anybody because uh, I'm not, because I, 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 I totally understand this happening. But so many times parents will be concerned for their children, and they keep rescuing them out of trouble. That might be how God's going to get their attention. And your fear is they will die in their sin. They will die in the mess that they're creating. You can see it coming. You're smart. You see it. You know. You've been there, done that. You can see it. And you've got to let them make their own mistakes and, until God engineers it. Now, you can tell them if they let you, give you that opportunity. But <laughs> um, I remember as a kid thinking how dumb my parents were. And I remember as a parent thinking... Oh, my parents are smart. My kids are dumb now. I get it. <laughs> and they would say, well, Dad, we're going to do this. And because we think, and I'm going, you are an idiot. Oh, great idea. Go ahead. You know, and I'll be here, you know, in six months when you need this. You know, I mean, that's how it works sometimes, right? So I think for me, um, sometimes I'll pray for it, and then I want to make it happen. You know, and I, I won't let God have his will. And I've, I've been talking to people, and I've had to ask a wife or a mom to leave the room. Just like, um, could you go in there and make me a sandwich or something? I need to talk to your husband without you answering all the questions for me. You know, leave the poor dude alone. Good night. <laughs> you know, let God have a word in his heart, you know, without you putting it, trying to put it there. So I think that can happen. But is it, right, is it ever wrong to pray for somebody's salvation? I'd say, no, it's never wrong to do that. And, yeah. Whoever believes, right? Right. Created for destruction. And, uh, and I would say also, um, get it out, Stuart. Esau. That, uh, he, he said, Jacob, I've loved Esau, I've hated. So that's another one. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and, and even in, uh, is it Hebrews or Timothy or both? There are vessels made for, for good use. There are vessels created for destruction. Um, and I don't pretend to understand that or know God's will in every particular case. That's where I've said, like, I don't know, and I'm not going to, I don't want to play, I don't want to be a minor deity in anybody's life. I'm just going to pray for them to get right, get saved, whatever. Leave it up to God. Like I said, I adopt the Airborne Rangers motto, pray for them all, let God sort it out. I'm not smart enough to tell God what to do, but I'm going to say, God, man, please, we ask you to save this person. I, I think that's always right. So I think you can pray. You can find enough verses to claim God's will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I can have confident endurance when I make a claim based on God's um, on God's uh, will, and then when I cling to that promise. Look at Hebrews eleven one. Uh, in a little bit, I'm going to come to a big old diagram for that. And like I said, you'll understand it even better. But here, Hebrews eleven one: Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. Now, you got to understand, I started pastoring a church when I was 19. Um, I, left, I passed that church for three months. Then I did a pulpit supply for a year. Came back to that church, pastored it for eight years. I was 28 years old when I got married. So from 19, you know, and so about 20 to 28, I pastored as a single guy. Um, close to 21, up to 28. And uh, the only reason this makes a difference, I went to a pastor's Christmas banquet. And so, like, 
pastors all know each other because we go to these little meetings all the time, all this stuff, and we get to know each other. And nobody knows each other's wives. Wives don't know each other uh, in general, like in, amongst churches. Um, and so I went to this association-wide Christmas thing, and there's nobody sitting by me. So pastors are standing up. I'm Pastor So-and-so from Citizens Church. This is my wife, Ruth. This is my wife, Marge. This is my wife, Mary. This is my wife. So it came to me, and I said, I said I'm Stuart McCarter. I'm Pastor of Stono Baptist Church. I pointed at the empty chair, and I said, this is my wife, Faith. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And, uh, and so they all did what you did. They chuckled. So that was a good one. But we kind of don't really understand that, that verse, I think, uh, uh, so much. And, uh, and so I'm going to come back, and, and we're going to hang on it. But notice that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So cling to the promise because you don't see the answer yet. And then, and I'm going to come back and explain that more. And then Philippians 2.12, we should work. But we ought to work according to what his will is. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and do for his good pleasure. That's verse 13. So in Philippians 2, 12 and 13, not only do we uh, know God's will, we work for his will. Now, again, you say, well, how does that line up with what you said a minute ago about trying to do too much? Uh, it lines up perfectly. Do what he tells you to do, not what you think you ought to do. Okay? Uh, somebody's called that tough love and made a million dollars writing a book about it. I just told you in two minutes and that's it, okay? Uh, step back, give, give God room to work. Um, and there are two extremes on the top of the next page. We either cop out or we're demanding. These are two ends of prayer that are extreme. One is, God, you got to give it to me. And we're the three-year-old in the store stomping our feet, turning blue. And I tell you, I like to give those kids the evil eye when the parent's not looking. And they'll shut up and they freeze up. And the parent looks around like, what? And they look around. By then I'm going. <laughs> so uh, um, sometimes I can stare at a kid and make them shut up. That's, that's fun to do. Um, the other end of this thing is a cop-out. Well, I, I asked God and he didn't do it. <laughs> well, how much? When did you ask him? Well, one night I just said, Lord, can, could you do this for me? And then he didn't do it. And I'm just, I don't, he's not going to do it for me. That's a cop-out, man. What, you just threw a prayer at the ceiling and hope it'd stick and then forgot about it? If it's important, it's important. And keep praying. Don't, you know, so, so hang in there. So don't go to either of those extremes. Don't be demanding of God, but also don't cop out on God. Say, I mean... What's a great illustration of that in Scripture? The guy that was balanced in it. And he didn't go far enough, really. He kept asking God for something, and then God said, okay. And he'd ask for more, and God said, okay. And asked for more, and God said, okay. I'm fooling you by saying more. He asked for less and less, actually. God, if you find 50 righteous people, and would, would you spare the city? Yeah. How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? You, you realize God destroyed Solomon and Gomorrah because he couldn't find 10 righteous people. I mean, think about that. You ask people, why did God destroy Solomon Mark? Because they were a bunch of homosexuals. No, because they couldn't find 10 righteous people. God will destroy America. Can we find 10 righteous people in America? Right? Okay? So once you think in those terms, you go, whoa, wait a minute. Hey, I want to be one of those righteous people. I want to count, make a difference. So those are two extremes. In the middle is learning and praying. 
between cop-out and demand is learning God's will and praying for God's will consistently. Okay, so I want you to see this, what I call confidence in God's power. Um, that's supposed to be a heart, and in the circle is supposed to be the word God. I, I, I do this on a Mac and send it to, to um, Katie, and, and parts of it get lost because it doesn't match because she's not on a Mac. She's got a, a, a PC, and, and um, hopefully the whole church will be on Mac one day. That'd be good. Um, but anyway, uh, but so that's supposed to say God. And what it's supposed to illustrate is my attitude ought to be a, a heart of love for God. And that my heart is chasing after God. Because if my heart's chasing after God, I want what He wants. My desire is for His desire. And, um, you know, I tease about Janice a lot. Let me, let me just give her a little bit of praise. Um, she, she has uh, allowed me to follow God the best of my knowledge, even when she knew better. Because of her love. And so, because she has a heart for God, she has a heart toward me. She has a heart of love toward me. And, I, you know, I said, I'll do, you know, what do you want? She said, you do what you think God wants to do and I'll go with you. Well, that's, that is the embodiment to me of faith, trust, and following after God. And so, all of a sudden, she's put the whole onus on me. Y'all know the word onus? I'm not sure if that's a, an English word or a Gullah word, but it just means that puts all the responsibility, that puts the, the big deal on me. So I got to, and, and I, 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 we, we talk about stuff. I, I listen to what she has to say. So my attitudes and actions have to be in coordination with God. And when that happens, I'm a man of faith. When my attitude is to want God's will, my actions are to go after God, then I become a man of faith. Now, again, we're going to go back to Hebrews 11.1. 1. We're going to spend a little bit of time there. And, oh, good. I've, I'm, not, I'm not as far out as I thought. That's, we're doing good. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Hebrew, y'all know about Hebrews 11, right? I'm, I'm backing up. Um, I never want to assume too much, and, and neither do I want to sound condescending. Hebrews 11 is the chapter of faith. When I was a kid, I would read 10 chapters a day. That was my Bible plan at the time. And I had a plan. I read different parts of the Bible. But one day I'd read Hebrews 11, and the next day I'd read 1 Corinthians 13. Hebrews 11... Chapter of love, chapter of faith. And just alternate those day by day by day. And Hebrews 11, you've got guys that soar in victory. And you've got guys that never saw a yes, positive answer from God on this side of heaven. They had to run from their enemies. They were killed. They were sawn asunder. They were tortured. They were, it, was, it was ugly. And they're in the hall of faith. Because they never didn't trust God, even in the worst things. You know, it's kind of easy for us to trust God and everything's going well, right? So, what are the two big words in Hebrews 11.1? 1? Well, faith is the, is the subject, but what are the... Uh, yeah, I would say faith is a big word. Yeah, assurance, and mine says assurance and conviction. Um, if you look, assurance, conviction, and, and these are different words in different versions. I didn't put the versions out beside it. Maybe you have one of these. Substance, evidence, sure, certain, hope for, unseen. And uh, that, that was the King James there, I believe. And, but all of these point, uh, I'm sorry, substance, evidence, King James, also New King James. 
All of these point to the future and the invisible. Okay, and I want to show you that by this illust- uh, by illustration. Um, in, in Romans 8, and, and I don't have a specific verse, but Romans 8 is about walking in faith. And if you don't know this, I will also tell you this. I could do a sermon series on Romans 6, 7, and 8. Those three chapters go together. Romans 6 uh, is um, about that we are dead to sin, alive to God. We're a slave to sin, now we're a slave to righteousness. Romans 7 is the struggle of living in faith. I mean, Paul says in Romans 7, I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. O wretched man I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. So it's debated, was Paul talking about before he's saved, after he's saved? He's after he's saved. He's talking about being saved in Romans 6. Now he's talking about the struggle of living a salvation life. And we come to Romans 8, and it's how to live in the Spirit, how to walk in the Spirit. So there is therefore no condemnation of those in Christ. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done... uh, for, for God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do by sending his own son the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So he's talking in this whole chapter about walking in a spirit-filled life and what that takes and how Christ won that for us. So you need to understand that as we're just going to go forward. I'm not going to spend too much time there. I want you to go back to Hebrews 11. I just encourage you to go back and read Romans 8 again. But in 11.1, but look at 11.6. We've already read one. Without faith, and it is a big word. I appreciate my brother saying that. It is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now, I love the King James on that. I, I, I can't let go of that language. My new modern version says he exists. I love the language he is. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, The God Who Is There. And it's God Who Is. If you're going to come to God, you must believe that he is. He never was. He's never going to be. That's not a true statement. He was and is to be. But he's all that all at the same time. But he is always in the is in our life. He's always in the present with us. So if you're, going to, if you're going to follow God, first of all, you've got to believe that He is, that He exists, that He is present, and He rewards those who do what? Seek Him. What does it mean to seek God? How do you seek God? I've got a little app on my phone. It's called geocaching. And people go hide little things, and, and then you can go on and you can... And so you can walk the Appalachian Trail, and if you've got a device that actually works in the mountains, because my phone doesn't, um, so it's pointless is my point. Um, But you can find little treasures all up and down the trail. And the people that go looking for them believe that they exist and that they could be found, and so they go looking for them. To seek God, I know he's there, and I'm going to find him. But how do you go looking for him? Thank you. Yeah, he's found in the pages of this word. But he can also be found in the spirit of personal presence in the world, right? This is, this is light on the path, but he's a presence in the dark. As I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because I'm the baddest dude in the valley. No, because thou art with me, right? So as we walk the dark side of this 
of eternity here on this earth, I have no fear because he is with me. I, I illustrate that in funerals. If you ever go to a funeral, I'm preaching, you hear me use this probably. As a little boy, we called it the tool shed. We had this wooden building in the back and the car went in on this side and there was a door and we called it the tool shed and it was crammed with our bikes and all. It was my dad's workshop and it wasn't that big. And back in the day, my parents put in a, a floor freezer, the kind that, you know, when they, people threw them away, little kids would get in there and suffocate because it latched, clothes you couldn't get out. It was one of those big old ugly ones. Plugged it in and we had that because my mom would go to the day-old bread store and buy loads and loads of day-old bread because it was cheap put it in the freezer, and then it would keep until we thawed out a loaf and we'd use it for sandwiches for, for school. You following me, right? You tracking with me? Okay. So what, what would happen is my mom would be making our lunch tonight before and run out of bread or know that she's going to run out tomorrow. And she'd say, Stuart, would you go get a loaf of bread out of the freezer? Now, understand this. I was afraid of my own shadow when I was a kid, okay? I... I I only fear my wife, God, and, a, and I used to say a moving 18-wheeler, but I pulled out in front of one of those, got hit. Now I don't scare, I'm not scared of those anymore. But, but, um, but I was scared of, man, I, I just didn't want to go out there. And part of the reason, beside the haints, is, y'all know what a haint is? <laughs> That's a ghost. Um, but besides them, I, I'm a kid, okay? Don't, don't judge. Um, besides them, in South Carolina and Charleston, we have things that we affectionately call palmetto bugs because they like to get in those trees. But it's just basically a big old roach, and they're about that big, and they're huge. And when they fly, they look like a black butterfly or moth, only they go click, click, click when they're flying. And when they land, they look like a dinosaur, going to eat you. And I did that because I was laying in bed one night, and I said, what is that moth? And it landed on the thing above me, and it looked over, and I said, it's a roach. I hated those two. I was scared of them. So I didn't want to go outside because what you do is you swing open that door and you reach around here. My dad had never put anything on the electrical wires, which are those cotton wound ones, you know those. And so you're feeling wires. Oh, Lord, don't let me hit the bare wire and shock myself. And then you hit the light. When you hit the light, they go, and they're running. And now I got to go to the freezer open and get the bread. I was terrified. I didn't want to do it. Okay, Mom. And I'm getting the keys. And Dad, would you go with me? Sure, son. He put down his paper, get out of the chair. Sometimes he'd just stand at the back door. As long as my dad was there, I was fine. And I wasn't scared of the roaches, wasn't scared of anything. Just walked out there, unlocked it, opened it, turned on the light, went in, got the bread, came out, turned off the light, locked the door, and walked back out of the house. But if he didn't go with me, it was, it was the whole way through. You think I'm exaggerating. I am not. That's how I felt. Man, I understand Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you go with me. You're with me. And once you understand God goes with you, what is there to be afraid of? See? All right? So I, I, want, you to, I want you to catch that. Uh, because verse 6 says, we believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who seek him. If I'm chasing after God. I, I illustrated it up here one time on a Sunday, I think. Sunday morning, I believe. Uh, about playing chase with a two-year-old. You know, a toddler. And they're like little fat legs and they're doing this. And so you go like this and you do that and they come after you. That kid's never going to catch you if you don't want him to. Why do you do that? Because they're laughing and they're having fun. And somewhere in however kids understand stuff, they know that eventually dad, they're going to get a hold on daddy. And so then I kind of slow down, I let them hit my leg and I fall down. And they fall on top of me and they're just giggling and laughing. That's what it means to seek God. You chase God, you'll never catch him. But all he's doing is, come on, come on. That's right, that's right. And he's increasing desire in your life for him. And you're like, I can't find God. Don't give up. 
He's just drawing you in closer and closer and closer, and then he's going to just grab you up, okay? When you believe that, you won't quit. That's what Hebrews 11.1 1 is about. Notice the, the first simple chart there. I pray here, there's a future when it's going to be met. In the middle, there's an invisible God that I cannot see that is listening and going to grant the request. Do you get that picture there? It's kind of a simple one. I pray, but now I've got to wait down this timeline to fulfillment in the future. But in that meantime is this invisible relationship, this invisible God that I have a relationship with, whom I'm trusting and whom I'm waiting on. And, and, and I'm going to say a lot more, and then I'm going to show you a, a great, 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 great chart. In verse 6, he is invisible. He is a rewarder. So catch that. He is, that's the invisible part. He is a rewarder. That's the future part. God exists, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. But it takes time as, as you're chasing God, and he's doing this with you. And he's just leading you, leading you, leading you till he gets you where he wants you. And then he lets you catch him. He gets you to the right spot. Moses, look at Hebrews 11. You're still there, 25 to 27. Here's the story of Moses. Choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses was a prince of Egypt. He considered the approach the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not uh, being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. He's looking at Egypt, and he grew up in, in the palace. He's a prince. He sees the power of Egypt. He knows the power of Egypt. And he considered that relationship with Christ of greater of God, greater reward and more important and more real, even though he couldn't even see it than what he could see there in, in Egypt. I mean, we're just, Americans, we got it pretty nice. But can you imagine living in Pharaoh's house in Egypt? I mean, you got a nation of people that are your slaves, Building pyramids, building these great monoliths and, and having all the gold and all the anything that a man could ever uh, think he wants. Uh, and anything to please himself was his. And he would rather suffer with the people of God than enjoy that. We, we don't want to give up. You know, last week we talked about fasting. Some people told me they had fasted and it was a great, a great experience for them. We won't even give up a meal. We won't give up few extra dollars a month, take away some of our pleasure in order to make sure a missionary stays on the field or somebody has some literature or whatever is needed. Man, Moses is a great example. Look, look at Hebrews, there's so many. Look at Hebrews 2, 8, and 9, just as a, another touch point here. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. So by the grace of God, he may test, taste death for everyone. I don't know if you're, if you're catching that. 
But guess who is waiting for the fulfillment of the promise of the Father to them? In 2, 8, and 9. Who is that waiting for the fulfillment of a promise made to them by God the Father? Tell her what she wins, Jay. Exactly. It's Jesus. Jesus is modeling this for us right now. He's seated at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies be made his footstool. The fulfillment of Jesus being the king is still in the future. You think Jesus has any doubt it's ever going to happen? No, not at all. He's got hope. He has confident expectation. God's going to fulfill his will for his existence. You say, man, why? I, I thought Jesus is God. You're confusing me. Don't despair. I'm confusing myself. I'm just telling you that's true. Okay? Now, Jesus can wait. Can you wait on heaven? Can you wait on God to fulfill the promises for you? That, that's kind of the point I'm trying to make there. Um, listen, the question is not, did I get a quick answer to my prayers on this side? The question is, do I have lap privileges with God? Is he my father? Can I go sit in his lap and say, Dad, here's my need? And he says, okay, I'll take care of it. Now, some people need more specifics than others. And usually that's divided on the man-woman scale. It can, it, some men are like that. Some women are not like that. I get that. But generally, because men's conversation is, lost my job. Oh, man, that's rough. And then we go home and say, hey, so-and-so lost their job. And the wife says, what? When? What happened? I don't know. He lost his job. He told me he lost his job. Well, how are they living? Do they have money? Do they need anything? they need food? Or is it, how are the kids? Are the kids all right? What is going on? Are they going to lose their house? they got to move? What's going on? I don't know. He lost his job. What do you want? You know, that's how us men are. And women are wanting all these details. And so I think in prayer sometimes we, I don't think it falls on a man one scale. In prayer it's like we're looking for this answer. Lord, what's going on? When are you going to do this? I really want this because that's that lustful desire in us. But can I say, Lord, here's my need. And God says, okay, I'll take care of that. And you go, okay. And you let go of it. Just trust him with it. Just let him have I, That was kind of a bad example, but you, you got the point. And I can just let go and say, okay, I, I trust you, Father. And I'll just wait on you to give me what you want me to have. All right? So in Hebrews 12, 1, we don't see the result, but we do see Jesus. See, following... I love 12.1, by the way. But after we see all these people of faith, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race set before us. We're running a race. The dude coming around the first and second turn can't see the finish line. All he sees is the track in front of him and the turn he's making. Right? Does he know the finish line is there? He knows that by faith. But he can't see it yet. So he runs the race. And why does he run the race? Because somebody ran that race last year and won. Jesus already ran the race and he won. And we have this cloud of witnesses in the Bible. Moses and Elijah and whoever else. And then people from my family that are in my cloud... You think iClouds are invented by Apple? No, 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 no. <laughs> I have a cloud of witnesses, and they're watching me run a race that they've already run. And I can't see the finish line. I don't know where it is. First time I ran the Cooper River Bridge run, it was a 10K run. 
and you had to go over the two big spans of the Cooper River Bridge. You never been to Charleston, you don't even know what I'm talking about. Everything in Charleston's flat except the Cooper River Bridge, and it goes like this. So you train and train and train and train, and then you run like this, and that's different. First time I ran it, man, it's, it was a mile to the bridge, two miles over the bridge, and then three miles to downtown Charleston. When I got over the bridge, I was halfway done, and I was done. I was dead. I could not. And I ran the rest of that race, chanting in my head, one more step, one more step, one more step. And we got to within about a mile or half a mile of the finish line, and I started hearing this. And we look up, and we're hearing voices, and it was the guys who ran four-minute miles. I'm running like eight, nine-minute miles for six miles. And it's guys that finished in 30 minutes. I'm an hour later, and they're coming back toward us going, Hey, come on, you can make it. It's just up there. The end line's right there. You're coming to the finish. You can do it. Come on. And they lined the street for about a mile going, It's just a little further. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Man, that was Hebrews 12.1 for me. There's a cloud of witnesses going, you can do it. You can do it. Go, go, go. And at the head stands Jesus, who went all the way to the cross. And he's going, come on. Come on. You can make it. Don't give up. Don't quit. We can't see the finish line. We can see Jesus. And he's just cheering us on. He's telling us, you can go. You can do it. You can make it. Man, I sound like an emotional preacher there, don't I? It's because I am one. We don't see the result. We see Jesus. The Christian life is made real by prayer. You will not have faith without prayer. Listen to Psalm 119, 18. Most, of the time, most people avoid Psalm 119 just because it's so long. <laughs> but you ought to spend time in every part of God's Word. Psalm 119, 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful, wondrous things out of your law. You've heard me pray that before sermons. Open our eyes that we can behold wonderful things out of your law. Truthfulness equals faithfulness. God is truthful, and we can be faithful in truthfulness. Faithfulness has to do with the integrity of God. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10, God has prepared things for us that we can, that we can have them. Let me read those verses to you real quick. We're going to come back to Hebrews 11, so don't leave it. But two, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 9 and 10 says this, But it is, as is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. We are running after something that nobody can see. It's invisible, and it's future, and we don't have it yet. So, here's how we have confidence and delay. Getting through that interval. We won't read it. You know about it. Matthew 4. The first temptation. Does Jesus' hunger take precedence over the spiritual pursuit? And the answer is no. His need for bread did not take precedence over the fact that man shall not live by bread alone. But by every word proceeds out of the mouth of God. And God had not released him to eat yet. So he didn't eat. He didn't turn stones to bread. What would that, would it have been a, uh, I'll ask a serious question that you cannot give me a serious answer to, I guess. Would it have been sin if Jesus had turned the stones to bread? The answer is yes. Not because, not because he was hungry and needed food and he went around God to get it, even though you could argue that is sin. But he would have fulfilled his selfish desire instead of the will of God. 
he would have acted contrary to the will of God. But he's hungry. He's going to starve to death. You said so in this morning's sermon. Yeah, I know. And it had been a sin for him to fulfill his need rather than trust God. Because there was a day appointed for him to die, and so he trusted, I'm not going to die. God's not going to let me die of starvation in the wilderness. I've got to go to a cross. Right? Now, I don't have that kind of knowledge, so I've got to look to Jesus, not to the finish line. Jesus could see the finish line. He, he's the guy that had to do it without anybody cheering him on except himself. As part of the deal. Second temptation. Do you want the power of God for your own lust? I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. I'll just give them to you. You won't have to fight for it. God said, I got to work for this. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to sit down. I got to wait on a bunch of knothead people for thousands of years to accomplish God's will before I can rule, or I could just get them all now because Satan said he'd give them to me. Well, Satan's a liar. If he's got his mouth open, he's lying, right? And Jesus knew that. But he'd rather have the power of God in his life and do it God's way than fulfill his own lust. And the third temptation is God first and alone. I'm not going to tempt God. I'm not going to not trust God. I'm going to obey God. So... In Deuteronomy 3.23, we see prayer plainly refused. This is in Moses' life. Moses is pleading with God. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before. In verse 22, or 23, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness in your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land. Moses is pleading with God to let him into the, into the promised land. How old is Moses when he prayed this prayer? 120. And he says, you've only begun to show your servant. <laughs> Dude, you've been around for 120 years. What do you mean God's only started just now showing you? He's been showing you for 120 years. Please let me go over and see the good lands beyond the Jordan and the good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Don't speak to me about this matter again. God told Moses, don't, don't ask me again. Stop. Now, where did Moses get to go? Got to go to heaven. Come on, man. Why do you want to go to a rocky old countryside, you know? And, at 100, and, and here's part of why Moses thought that way. The Bible tells us that at 120, his strength had not abated at all. He was as strong in 120 as he was as a young man, which is kind of wild for us to imagine, but that was true. Um, he was the last of the long livers. And I don't mean a long liver. I mean, he lived a long time, okay? Um, so so I, that's a plain no from God. God told the same thing to Paul. No, Paul, I am not going to take that from you, but I am going to give you my grace. My grace is sufficient. He didn't even offer that to Moses because he knew he was going to take him to heaven pretty soon. It's like, quit worrying about it. Don't, don't ask me again. Don't, I mean, this sounds like a dad. Don't, don't, Moses, don't ask me again, man. I'm telling you, be quiet about that. Let it go. You're not going to be disappointed. When did Moses go to the promised land? It's in the Bible. And Peter said, Lord, let's build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Elijah, one for Moses. 
That's in Mount Transfiguration, right? Jesus' life. Moses standing on the mountain going, man, I was an idiot. <laughs> I get to come here anytime I want. You don't always see me, but... You say, you saying he's a ghost? No, no, no. I'm just saying he got to be there. Well, prayer is sometimes plainly refused. Don't sweat it. God's got something better for you. Psalm 13. There is ongoing testing in our life. And we're going to come back to Hebrews 11, I promise. Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. And my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. David said that. David felt like it was all done. And testing kept going on and on. And he's like, how long do I have to go through this? But I trust in your love. I mean, when we're testing, does that make you doubt God? When we're tested, I should say. So there's five conditions for confidence. And they're found in Psalm 25, 1 through 3. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O Lord, in you I trust. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemy exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are uh, wantonly treacherous. There is no shadow of doubt in God's will. Okay? I put my trust in you. I, I never plead in my own name. I plead in the name of Christ. I always believe in the willingness and ability of God. And that goes back to Janice's question. Can I pray with knowledge that God saved somebody? Absolutely. Because I believe in his willingness and ability to do it. Okay? Um, A.W. Tozer said this, With God's knowledge to know my best, with his love to desire my best, and with his power to accomplish my best, what do I lack? I've, I am of all men most blessed. The problem is we don't trust what God wants to give us. We want what we want instead of what he wants. Or I can trust in his character and who he is. There can be no continued sin and I continue in prayer. If those five things are true in my life, God's going to give an answer. Now, this chart on the next page is Hebrews 11.1 1, drawn out. This is how you live life in the interval, okay? We're going to back up to chapter 10 there for a second. And uh, let me read that part to you as we're looking at the first things on here. In Hebrews 10, 35 and 36, says this, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So, I've got a little dude down here praying. All right, so we're going we're to see how this is fulfilled. I need truth and the Spirit. That was found in Jude 20, and, and here it's Psalm 119, 105. Let me read that to you. It's another text uh, of that truth. Jude 20 is one. If you want to add it there, you don't have to. 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So we have light for the path. We have personal presence in the dark. So I pray, and I pray to God. God, you see, extends over. The answer in, in, in his providence 
comes later and it comes in two ways, either ordinary means or by a special answer. This morning I said something about being a diabetic and God hadn't healed me yet. They have figured out how to heal diabetes. I won't go into another medical, physical, uh, not metaphysical, physical or medical explanation of it. But basically, the cells that produce insulin are stimulated by a protein. They give me a shot of that protein and my pancreas will grow those cells that make insulin once again. They haven't got it all right yet, so we don't get, we don't get to take the shot yet. But that would be ordinary means. Somebody figured it out and it's an ordinary mean. Or... All of a sudden, my sugar could be dropping, and I couldn't get it to, to stabilize. And I'm going, what's wrong? And I cut off my pump, and everything goes normal. And it never rises above normal. Whoa, God just healed me supernaturally. Okay? So one of those two things could happen, or neither could happen. And I die and go to heaven, and I'm not diabetic there. So one of the three ways, I'm going to get healed. All right? I have that hope. I have that confident expectation it's going to happen. I, I have asked God... But I've only asked kind of like if it's your will and you want to. Because I'm content to live with diabetes. Because God gave them to me for a reason. So when he, that reason's gone, he wants to take them away. I'm cool with that. But if he doesn't take them away, I'm cool with that too. So God, I want, you, I want to read Romans 8 to you. And then we'll look at the chart in a little more detail. Because I'm not drawing it as we're doing it, which would help, I guess. But Romans 8, 26 through 27 Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray, what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We have this interval that can be short or it can be long in Hebrews 1036 says that I'm trusting, I'm waiting, and we had already read that. I'm trusting and waiting in God or for God, on God for that answer, all right? For you have need of endurance that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So I do the will of God and I still don't get the answer. And I'm like, wait a minute, I did the will of God. Why, why am I not getting the answer? Because he wants to continue to do his will. It's back to the lady that I said. Her name was Beverly, by the way. It is Beverly. I think she's still alive. I don't know. Hey, how long till God changes your circumstances? Till God does something. You got to just trust God and do the right thing until then. And she did. I mean, she really did. And God did give her an answer later. And so the interval might be longer, it might be short, but I need endurance. I need to continue to do the will of God. You know, we live in a generation of people and and you know, nothing personal here, I'm, I'm, but, you know, we're overweight, and, you know, we put a Pop-Tart in the microwave, and we stand there going, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, you know, we're, we're an instant generation, aren't we? Now, we, we, we talk to people in 140 characters. We send texts, you know, we don't even call people, just call. Our kids, hardest thing I'd ever do, only person my ever son ever got on the phone with and talked to is this Girlfriend, I guess it became his wife. <laughs> I don't even know he did that then. I think they texted a lot more than anything else. Probably, I'm glad that it got to you know like unlimited by the time he was going to get married because he was constantly doing it. And you, I remember those two hundred dollar phone bills when we were dating and she lived far away and uh, for for just three months. I'd, I'd have gone broke if she hadn't gotten back in town. But we're an impatient people and. You know, every TV show you watch, man, the longest it takes them to solve a problem is an hour. 
right? The world will be coming to an end and Bruce Willis will fix it in less than 60 minutes. Or whoever, I'm just making up a name there. Not making up a name, but just picking on him. So the question is, have you learned to live in the interval? Because that's where the Christian life is. The Christian life is lived in that interval. So I pray to God and God answers it, but that's in the future. So I'm praying to the one who's invisible. And down here, he who's invisible. And when did he know what he was going to do? From before the foundation of the world. He says, I know your thoughts from afar. I know what you're going to think. I hear your prayer before you ask it. He's already sending the answer. And of course, we can go to Daniel. There was a hindrance to the answer getting there. We know that. So we have no shame. I've already read that, Psalm 25, 3. So don't put me to shame. And, and, and the end of that chapter, uh, and it, because it's all about God's glory. I'm praying that God would, would answer for his own glory, not for my need, but for his glory. And the end of that chapter, verses 20 to 21, or not the end, but in the middle, says this. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. My integ- may integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. So he has integrity. Remember, uh, man, I just uh, noticed this today. I or read it today. It might have been in a devotion. I'm not sure. But the three children in, in the fiery furnace. You remember what they said to the king before they got thrown in there? King said, I'm going to throw you in there. And they said, that's okay. Our God can deliver us. But if he doesn't, we just want you to be aware, we're still not going to bow to your idol. They maintained integrity of obedience to God, going into a furnace with confidence that God could rescue them, but they didn't care if he rescued them or not. That wasn't the point to them. The point was, we got to obey God. Now, God did rescue them. It's a great, a great illustration of faith. And, of course, Jesus was with them in the fire. Remember the one that goes with us in the valley of darkness? Salvation, Romans 10 you call upon the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. When, whenever I use the Roman road with somebody, I come to that verse. I say, what is that word right there? And the King James, shall be. It says, will be in the modern versions. Will be saved. Does it say might be? No. Nope. Does it say want to be? No. Nope. Does it say hopefully it will be? No. Nope. It says, shall be saved. So do you have that no doubt, that no confidence? God is, because I have not seen full salvation yet. I mean, how do I know I'm saved? A changed life, the internal witness of, of the Holy Spirit, His Word being illuminated to me, knowing that God teaches me and shows me stuff. But what if that's just psychological? What if I'm just fooling myself? What if we have a mass delusion in religion? I didn't mean to cause anybody any doubt. We don't. It's the truth. But I'll know I'm saved when I see heaven. Experientially. I know it now because the Spirit's been given to me as a down payment, an earnestness, an earnest of heaven. He's already given me the Spirit. He will not get his $1,000 back to hold the house. He bought my house and he put the down payment in me, so I know I'm going to heaven. That's how I know I'm saved. The Holy Spirit lives with me. And I see evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. That's what I was saying this morning. If you're not even getting little buds of fruit, you, you, know, you, you better check that out. Because we ought to have fruitfulness in our life. Um, in Psalm 22, and in case you don't know this, Psalm 22, 23, and 24 are a trilogy about Christ. And in Psalm 22, it's a suffering on the cross. And there on the cross, there's an interval of three days. And seven and eight uh, is 
Number one, it's beautiful, and my finger was right there. I didn't realize it. Let me read those verses to you. Remember, this is about Christ on the cross, and it says this. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Um, and he, he goes on to say, yet he, uh, you took me from the womb. And I, I want to, um, I've got a feeling I've messed up the text there. Because I know it's in here. Let me find it. I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. Well, that might be not be the right chapter that I'm thinking of. Uh, but these verses here are saying for that he trusted in the Lord for three days that the Lord would deliver him. That's what they were mocking him. They're mocking him about his faith in God. Uh, I, I was saying it was right here. Uh, it must be another chapter where he says he trusted that he would not see corruption, that, that God was in control of that, and he, his, his body would not see corruption. It might be um, 13 and 14, the encouragement there. Um, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, uh, and it's melted within my breast. Um, there's an interval of three days. Jesus, uh, that's 27. That's the problem there. Okay, let me try that one. And 27, I'm sorry, 13 and 14. Sorry, I messed that up. I, I believe I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And remember, wait is an active thing. It's not just a passive thing. So I have encouragement. There was an interval of three days, Jesus in the tomb. I've, I've messed up that reference somewhere. At, it might be in at Psalm 2 or it might be another one. But, um, but there was an interval of three days, Jesus laid in a tomb. Trusting that the Father would raise him from the dead. And he did. He totally put his trust there. There's an encouragement in Psalm 27, 13 and 14. Isaiah 49, 23. I try to go back over these, and I thought I'd read them all, and I must have missed something. And sometimes it just gets mistyped or misprinted, and we miss it. Because there's a change between me doing it and getting on here sometimes. Not all the time. Sometimes it's my fault. Um, Kings shall be your foster fathers, and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And I, it, the Bible like says the Lord, but it's all capital, so I wanted to say his name there, that he trusts that one day he's going to be revealed that he is God of very God. Okay? And so, again, it's that living in that interval. I know that I'm going to heaven. I'm going to get a new body. Everything's going to be great there. Heaven always adds. It never subtracts. It's 1610, okay, is the other one um, that I was thinking of, and it's a good one, so if you want to throw it in there for three days. I, I, if I look back at my handwritten notes, sometimes I can see why yeah, it was hard to see. Um, I've got to pull this out and look at it. I'm not going to worry about it. But Psalm 1610 says this. 
For you will not abandon my soul to hell or Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And before that, he says, therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. So it's a total faith and confidence in God and what he is going to do uh, for Christ. Christ has confidence in him. So that chart that, that I showed you, that little drawing of that guy, I hope that gets stuck in your head. That you pray to an invisible God and the answer comes in the future. Now, the last thing I want to talk about, five minutes, won't, won't take very long. This is the last page. We have to distinguish between faith and hope. These are two different things. Now abideth faith, hope, and love, right? So what is the difference between faith and hope? Hope is the heartwarming part to keep faith uh, lively. There's a, there's a strong functioning arm in faith, but faith is vulnerable to the cold. I believe God. I trust in his promise, but I don't get the promise. And I don't get the promise. And I don't get, we're watching this series uh, on Wednesday nights uh, about the men who uh, built America. And right now they're on wilderness men. And uh, in the days, uh, you know, as a kid, you couldn't get to a phone, you know, when you got home late, your parents said you couldn't. How about now we got cell phones, man? We know where everybody is all the time, right? If your loved ones don't know, the government knows. But man, back in the day, and I'm watching this, and I'm looking at Daniel Boone, and my, my, one of my great ancestors, whatever, great-grandfather or something, uh, went into Kentucky and hunted with Daniel Boone. They hunted there for two years. He went there and was gone for two years. They didn't know if they were coming back or not. My grandfather didn't. Daniel Boone did. When they went back two years later, they found his bones in a tree. But I'm just saying, can you imagine mom back home, the wife back home? Sometimes those guys that come back from those kind of trips and, oh, I thought you died. I married another dude, <laughs> you know. It's like, oh, no, I'm back. Okay, well, get out. I'm going to keep him, you know, whatever. I don't know how that worked out. You know, that was kind of crazy, wasn't it? No word, no way to get word. You just sat there and had faith. In Charleston, uh, sorry to re- reference that, but in Charleston, there's these, these things off the windows of the, of the old houses downtown. They call them widow walks. And in the revolution and in the war between the states, the young wives would go out and stand there to see where, where their husband's coming home, and they call them widow walks. Because if he never got back, then they figure he died. Can you live not knowing, you know, what, what's coming? And so, you, I got faith. I'm going to heaven. Everything's going to be great. And tomorrow I wake up, my bank account's empty, and, you know, I'm struggling in my marriage, and my kids are gone astray, and the boss at work's riding my case, and not getting along with my workmates, and all my friends have left me, and the dog died. You know, whatever. It's a country song. Just think of any country song. Okay. All of a sudden, my faith starts waning. Do I actually have hope that God's going to fulfill his promises in my life? Life has a way of knocking that out of you. And hope keeps faith alive. And the, word is script, the, the important word in scripture is until. Until. I, I told you, that lady said, how long do I have to do this? I said, until God gives you an answer. Until. And so we just live in the until. And then when God gives the answer, it's great. Satan will weaken and discourage and damage your faith, and then he overwhelms us. But prayer will become a distasteful routine because you no longer believe God. You, you're, you're having trouble. So 
Here in Psalm 16, 5 through 11, it says, The Lord is my chosen portion of my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in a pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord before, uh, always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh, flesh also dwells secure. For you, uh, for you will not abandon my soul to hell or let your Holy One see corruption. That's where I had it written down that I was coming to it. Um, but here's the point. The verse, the verse that makes that passage is really verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. It's not a desperate holding on. It's gazing upon the face of Jesus. Again, Hebrews 12.1. Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of God. Psalm 25, we see no shame. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Jesus endured our shame for us so that we would not have to be ashamed. Um, Proverbs 2, 1 through 9. Um, and these are just verses of encouragement, by the way. Uh, not necessarily have to do with that last phrase there. Uh, Proverbs 2, 1 through 9. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasure. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. That means not giving up. Guarding the paths of justice and watching over the ways of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity. Uh, every good path for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Remember the little phrase I gave you. When you go to pick blackberries, you run into briars before you get to the fruit. Okay? And so this is a process that we go through. Psalm 9, 18. And I'm just going to read these and we'll be done. Psalm 9, 18 says this. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. You think God's forgotten you? You're not forgotten. He, he'll remember. And I put a bunch of asterisks by Psalm 57, 1, okay? And, and here's why. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. Notice that. In the shadow of your wing I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. We shelter in God. That's how we endure by looking to him. And then Psalm 91.1. Um, any of the 90s are awesome verses. But 91.1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So perseverance happens. When we shelter in God. Even when stuff's going bad. As I said this morning. He kind of he puts us in the eye of the storm uh, so that even though everything's falling apart around us, we don't 
despair. All right. So that's this section. And uh, we'll come back next week. For, well, not next week. Next week's Easter. Uh, we won't meet on Easter uh, Sunday. And by the way, you see that in time. In time. Uh, that means hang in there because it's not going to happen today. It happens in time. Um, Henry Blackaby, if you took experience in God, you remember that he said that he likes to say, God is never late. And his wife said he's never early either. <laughs> because sometimes we think, man, where's it coming? It's going to be right on time. And so in time, we have to just dwell in God until we see the fulfillment of his promise. And listen, if I didn't have hope for tomorrow, I couldn't live today, could I? I, I, don't, I couldn't. I don't know, maybe you could, but I couldn't. I have hope God's going to do greater tomorrow than he did today in my life. And the day after that, even greater. And the day after that, even greater. And it's going to keep getting better. God made me an optimistic person, and I'm grateful for that. Um, so I, I, I pray that my optimism is not a foolish, fleshly thing, but a confidence in God who says, I got it. Don't worry about it. And it's a trust thing. It really is. So I pray that my enthusiasm and my optimism is, is a trust in the will of the Father.